today we are going to continue this series in Advent, of course, and we're going to look at uh, this concept of finding the face of the king, finding the face of the king. So we've moved through the different Advent weeks. We've seen how they build on each other from hope to faith, and that begets peace. And now we understand what is to be the fabric of peace. What is to be the thing that holds peace together and that makes peace continue and expand, and that is love. And in order to experience love, this is the bottom line today, in order to, in order to be able to love, we must experience God's love. In order to be able to love, we must experience God's love. Okay, we're going to get there by moving through some of this history, what we've been doing in this Advent series from the Old Testament to the breach to sort of the, the outcomings of the New Testament, where in the Old Testament we're looking for a Messiah. The look, the search for the Messiah in the Old Testament is to seek the face of God. This is what the people of the Old Testament are doing from Abraham to Moses to David. They are seeking the Lord's face to know his love for them and to understand it so deeply that it compels and it brings them into the people they are and allows them to do things that they are able to do. But in order to find that, as we went through the story of the Bible, we understood first that there was a void created. Right? That there was a space in which humanity realized we have tried to be God and we cannot. We can't do what he can do. We can't act like he can act. We can't act in that perfect obedience. We are not God. We are created to rule under God. And there is some extent to which we reach our limits, and that is actually to find out who we are. And once we find out who we are, we can truly appreciate God for what he is because he is the one who fills everything beyond ourselves. He is the one who created us to hold a space and fills all of the space beyond that. So in order to illustrate that, I wanna show you an image probably all of you have seen before. Everybody's seen probably this image. And this is an image that's used a lot in, in sort of art and design, or maybe it's used in lots of other places too, to illustrate this idea with what we call negative space. Okay, what is negative space? Negative space is the space that is in between objects. And when you look at that, you realize in this picture that the, the mind is playing with what is the negative space. Is the negative space the two faces? And what we're looking at is a chalice or some kind of cup? Or is the negative space the cup and we're looking at two faces? And your mind plays, it can go back and forth and it can see a cup and then it can see faces. And you can just switch this, it's a matter of perception. And what you're doing is you're trying to understand what is the negative space and what is the positive space. Humanity when it reaches its limits, understands that there is something beyond ourselves that we can't possibly command. We can't rule it, we can't grasp it. We are not God. And so as our faces come out to each other, there is a space in between of us that God must fill. Now, when we decide that we are God, what happens is we begin to distort ourselves. We try to become the space in between. And if you could imagine that face morphing into that chalice, it would cease to look like a face anymore. And that's what humanity does when it tries to become like God. We disfigure ourselves. We become unrecognizable to the creator as the creation, the created Imago Dei humanity that he made. We don't see it because we're too busy trying to fill that space. But guess what? Everybody around us can see it. Everybody can see when you disfigure yourself to try and overextend and become godlike. And so early on in the Old Testament story, we see that Adam and Eve realize what they've done very, very quickly. They develop this sense of shame. And then there is this horrible story of violence and outrage and hurt and war and tribalism that develops from that point onward. And then what you see is as God calls Abraham and then Moses, there is this revealing 
In fact, that revealing was as early as Genesis 3.15 when we talked about God saying, what will happen to the serpent? He says, and there will be an offspring of Eve and he, you will bite his heel, but he will bruise your head. Right there at that very beginning, we see the first premonitions of what it is that can fill this space to make humanity whole. What is that purpose, that void that God fills? And the Old Testament reveals that as we begin to see that shape more and more, we realize and we put a name to it called the Messiah. So what is the one who will hold perfectly the human shape and the negative space in between? What is the one who will keep and maintain perfect harmony in the universe as a man? And we will find as the story reveals itself, surprisingly, as God. That is the Messiah. And so it starts as this sort of ominous black void. It starts as this, okay, that there will be a, a person and he will defeat the serpent, but that's not much to go by. Like, how will it work? Will he be a priest, a prophet, a king? And we see these different characters throughout stories that, that take on this Messiah figure and begin to shape it, but they can't hold it up. They can't be the Messiah, because they are not the Messiah. They're just the beginnings of starting to shape and understand what that form is, okay? So now, this will do a better job of illustrating it for us. You see how these shapes at the bottom come out from black, and by the time they're at the top, they're a, you know, goose or a swan or some kind of duck. Then we go in the same direction in the bottom, we see how the white eventually becomes a fish. This is a famous drawing by M.C. Escher. And the idea that I'm trying to illustrate here is that over time in the Old Testament, as we approach the breach of the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, that fills in more and more and more until we actually have a figure we can see. Where Christ was once this just shape of white that started to look like a fish. Now he's fully colored in. Where Christ was once just a black sort of sense of need and want and desire of something I can't feel, now he becomes the shape of the duck or whatever, right? Do you understand what I'm trying to illustrate here? That there is a search and a revealing that happens and it's made perfect in Jesus Christ. When we read the Old Testament this way, we become Advent people from the first page to the last page of the Minor Prophets. We become people who can be yearning like the people of the story for the shape of Christ to seek the face of God and see it as if we are face to face. So that's what, when I read this morning, the call to worship, where David ostensibly is writing this song and he says, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. That's what he's talking about. David is talking about the fact that he's at the top of the game. He is the king. He is actually the Messiah. That is what the name anointed one means. He takes on the role of Messiah. He is the closest thing to Jesus they've got. And he says, I know inside I'm not. So Lord, the only thing I can do to truly live out the calling of your anointing on me is to seek your face as you have instructed me. And I know that that is operating in my limits, maintaining the shape of my human form of the Imago Dei. And I know that you will bring to pass the thing that you are shaping, whether it's in my lifetime or beyond. Do you see how that humbles somebody? This is, the, this is the top. This is the Mark Zuckerberg. This is the Jeff Bezos. This is the guy who everybody looks up to and says, that guy really figured it out. And what makes him the anointed one, what makes him the Messiah of that time, what makes him the one who follows after God's own heart is this posture of seeking with his whole life to find the face of the king. So are we earnestly seeking God's face in our life? In this season, as we're in Advent, are we telling ourselves, God, you have said, seek my face. 
And my heart, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Is that our posture? Or maybe are we anxiously relating to God? We're in this space over here and we've said, I'm really anxious of God. I'm afraid of what I'm going to find as I find out more. I'm afraid if I get in too deep in a church that it's going to abuse me. I'm afraid that God doesn't actually have his best interests, my best interests out for me. I'm afraid that black shape scares the heck out of me and I don't want anything to do with it. I'm anxious about God. I know that I'm no good. I know that I can't live up to my promises. And when I seek the face of God, it fills me with anxiety because maybe deep down I believe he's essentially unknowable. Maybe I believe he's essentially distant. Maybe things have happened in my life where I feel like if this really is love, God, then maybe I don't want it. Because the way my life is going doesn't feel like you love me very much. Maybe that's why we've given up the search to seek God's face. And so what might happen to us then is we're searching everywhere, trying everything, finding any way to cure our own limits. We understand, all of us understand our own limits. So what we're doing is we're attaching ourselves to things and to people when we're faced with fears. We'll know this because when anxieties and fears come up, we don't go to God. We go to name your addiction, name your coping mechanism. We don't act out of the Imago day when we're faced with fear and anxiety. We distort ourselves. That's another way of putting it. That is an indication that perhaps we have anxiety that we need to bring to God. When we're seeking his face, we're crumbling. Or perhaps we are lazily relating to God. And in this sense, we feel that life is good enough that God is essentially unnecessary or inconsequential. This is a pretty common viewpoint right now. Great, you've got it, that works for you, you do you. That God thing works for you, I understand some people need that. Eh, life's the same whether you got him or not, right? He's exhilarating, he's inconsequential to my life. Some of us, even that are Christians, have this kind of laissez-faire, relaxed view of our relationship to God and I'd liken it maybe to this. In college, I had a roommate and he was, uh, he wasn't quite an exchange student, but he was from Japan and he was there just for a year. And so for some reason, I got my roommate the year before, didn't decide, I don't know how they do it. But anyways, I had gotten paired with this guy and I met him on day one, super sweet, super nice, you know, great. Oh, we're gonna be roommates, that's so great. Can't wait to get to know you. Literally, from that point to the end of the year, I think I saw him five times. The guy was nocturnal, like he was never around. He would sleep in other people's dorm rooms. He just like, he would sleep in the art studio. Like he, literally I saw him five times. But every time I saw him, I was like, hey, and he's like, hey, how's it going? It's, you know, good to see you. It was the weirdest relationship of all time. Because essentially, even though we had no real problems with each other, like it was a loveless relationship. There was no desire really to sacrifice of time to connect with each other. It wasn't that he had anything against me, right? It was just that he had a lot of other things going on, right? Like I was sort of unnecessary to his life. I, I, it was, he wasn't gonna be there long-term in a year he was gonna be out. He didn't really need to connect with me and get to know me. There was no reason to rely on me. He had everything provided for him everywhere else. And so what it really amounted to is a lack of interest. Ah, yeah, Lord, I know you have a face, but I got, I'm busy and I got lots of stuff to do. And I feel pretty good with all the other things. I feel pretty loved. I don't really need your love. Maybe that's the way that we view God. That's why for so many Christians, by the way, when you find people that are really on fire for Jesus, what has happened in their life? I mean, like eight times out of 10, somehow they have hit just rock bottom. They have just bottomed out completely. 
alcoholism, wife or husband leaving them, a death of a sibling, like they have just bottomed out and there is literally nothing left except God underneath all of it. So just, just as, a, as a suggestion, if you are finding that you're reaching your limits, if you are finding that you can't do it anymore, maybe that's God calling out to you to seek his face. Maybe he's there to provide for you. See, in, in, in both of these, if you haven't noticed, in both of these, God essentially amounts to a reflection of what I think about myself. If I'm anxious and fearful, God is the one creating fear. God is the source of anxiety. He doesn't help it. He doesn't cure it. He's a reflection of myself. If I'm okay with everything in life, he sort of reflects that. We're actually not seeking a face of a divine being who creates the order of the world. We're using our order and our understanding to try and order God. And this is a very common paradigm, but you see Israel and their leaders knew too much. They knew too much. They had been given these promises and these prophecies and they had been walked with with God in these miracles, crossing the Red Sea, winning battles in crazy ways, protecting their people. And they just knew way too much. This was a people that could not dismiss God in the same way that we choose to now, many of us. And so the loyal, the people that knew too much and said, I can't shake him. We're sitting in this time of exile, which is the time I just most identify with Advent, approaching this late stage of Israel where everything has bottomed out nationally. It's bad news. We can identify with that right now. You, you pull up the news in Israel that time of year, those 70 years, and it's like dismal, right? You're not even listening to the news of your own people. You're listening to foreign language news. You don't even have people that recognize you and represent you. That's how dismal it was. And so they are going through and pouring through the scripture, saying to themselves, I need to find out what the Messiah looks like. I need to see him. I need to know him. I need to experience his love. If God is love and God is the creator of order, then that means order and love and harmony are all the same thing. God's love is the harmony of the universe. God's order is love. See, this is like the thing that for Christians we have such a hard time with. We hear order and we think that's imposing on me, that's not loving. But these three things are all part of the nature of God. They're all part of the same thing. And so then what happens is Israel begins to say this question that Elijah's family read for us, lighting the Advent candle. And this is essentially the pervading question that begins to shape the Messiah. This is the question that Israel asked themselves. Psalm 24, verse three. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Some translations, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who, who, what human being is worthy to go and to meet God? But who could it be? Moses, Elijah, one of the prophets, Isaiah. Who could it be that could meet God and see him face to face? We have throughout Old Testament history, we have different people seeking to ascend the mountain of God. It's actually a really common image in the Old Testament, and it really helps us to see how this happens over and over again. We find different people that God has appointed ascending his mountain. The first one that we see is Abraham. And he goes, in verse 2, it says, Then God said, Take your son, your only son who you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Interesting, the context. 
of the first one to ascend. By the way, the mountain image is the Garden of Eden. So the original mountain is Eden. We descended from that mountain, right? Into the deeps, into the wasteland, into the desert. And God is now calling someone to ascend the mountain. But what is he asking him to do? Sacrifice your own son? This is like, by the way, this is like, I don't get it. This is like, I don't have a shape for this yet. I don't understand what you're after here. This literally doesn't make sense to me. This doesn't seem like God. It's not shaping up yet. And then we see Moses in Exodus 15 at Mount Sinai. Sorry, I'm using an actual Bible today. So you're, you're watching me do my best flipping skills to page to page. Exodus 15, verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands have established. This is, by the way, the, the song that is being sung after the Israelites cross the Red Sea. So they're exalting God and they are saying, God, you will bring Israel in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. So this is looking forward, the shape, getting more defined, saying, eventually you will place us, all of us, in your presence. We will be able to see you face to face. That's an incredible statement. And what we see then in the Exodus story is that Moses begins to bring the people, but they can't all go up to the mountain yet. They're not living in order and harmony. They are not wanting to seek the face. So those who are desiring to seek the face go up with Moses and they seek the Lord's face. And eventually, man, they fall hard. And we've got the story of the golden calf. And we have Moses then contending with God at the mountain which is what we're going to zoom in today. Moses contends. And I'm going to read the scripture here from Exodus and to see how it is that Moses is acting out this mountaintop figure and what that looks like for him to seek God's love. Exodus 33, you can read along with me if you'd like. We'll give you a second. Exodus 33, in the verses starting with verse 7. Exodus 33, verse 7. Here we have Moses, who has actually gone up already to Sinai. He's come down. He's chucked those Ten Commandments into crumbles because what did he see before him? Just absolute apostasy. Just Israel just like, you know, raving out, frat partying out at a golden calf and worshiping that in, in, in addition to their God. Not in, in exclusion to, in addition to. And so Moses, this is how the story begins after this. It says, now Moses, okay, Moses had gone, a little more backstory, Moses had gone and he had contended and he had said, God, this is like a total disaster but I know that I have your favor and I believe that we can fix this. I believe that these people can still be your people. Don't give up on them yet. And he says, if you won't, then just blot me out. Just kill me now. Take my life if you're gonna take all their life. I'm a righteous one. I'm one who's followed you. I'm one who's committed to you. Go ahead and just take me to them. He calls God's bluff a little bit, doesn't he? And he says, I'm going to contend. You promised, and I'm going to take these promises back to you. And then after that, Moses gets pretty upset at his people. Remember, he grinds up the golden calf. He makes them drink it in powder. That's a pretty visceral image of, I think, any parent can understand that feeling when you're just like, I'm so angry. <laughs> right? Like, you knew better. And then we have Exodus 33. Things have simmered a little bit. And we have Moses again going to seek the face, but how does it start? 
I'll read the first six verses. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling at the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out of the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance of the tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the power, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshiped, each at the entrance of their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Okay, now this next part is a zoom in. Sometimes you have to read these and realize things are not always totally chronological. Now we're zooming in to an event of Moses in that tent. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember, this nation is your people. What a powerful dialogue as a leader for Moses to give. What a sacrificial attitude. What a frank conversation to have with God, by the way. There's no decorum here. There's no like waving wands and symbols and doing incense. There's just a conversation based on what God has told Moses and Moses imploring him for next steps. But how, how does it start? This can easily be lost. Verse 12, you have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. Moses is saying to God, you told me that you literally completely know me and still like me. So now I'm ready to do business. My heart is saying, this is Moses. If Moses was talking, my heart is saying, I know you love me, God. I know that you completely know the worst things I've ever done, thought, desired, doubted, and you still love me. So this is counterintuitive because in order to seek the face of the king, in order for us to desire to be like Jesus, we will not do this simply by going after God, just running up eager, you know, just like, I, I want to do this church thing. I want to know Jesus. I want to start reading my Bible. I want to start learning. I want to jump into seminary. I want to like just full throttle. I'm in. And this verse tells us we must first be seen by him in order to see him. We must first imagine this, imagine a crowd of people and realizing that our creator's eyes are out there. And every time we look over the crowd, his eyes are just trained in on us. And he's so affirming of us. And he's just nodding at all of the things we're saying and has that slight smile of you are doing a good job. I love you. When you come before God, are you being seen by him? Are you being known by him? This, this is a really hard act for us because it's first a quiet act to be seen by God. It's, it's first a vulnerable act and it's an honest act. You can't lie about it. And it can only be done with a bedrock of time, right? My, my college roommate and I could have really enjoyed each other. If we don't actually take the time to take that somewhere, nothing's going to happen from it. And the time grows out of not a desire simply to mimic somebody, be like them, but it comes from a desire first that's propelled from being known by them, from being safe, from being loved. So when we approach God, church, like... Do we do that? Like, do we rest and, and admit our, our failures, our faults, but not stop there, not beat ourselves up there, but release them and literally acknowledge the absolute undeniable truth that he loves you. 
that he's just totally smitten by you. That he's so glad you're coming to hang out and share those things with him. And like, he wants to do all of those things you wish your parent would do with you. He wants to do all of those with you. See, it is Moses going and allowing himself to be known that allows him to know God. And how, how can we do this? What are some of the ways we can do this? I've, I've mentioned a few, and I'll just be explicit on a few of these. One is just prayer and confession. This is a way that we can be known by God. One commentator I was reading wrote that when Isaiah sought to know God, he got so close that he had to cry out how unclean he personally felt he was. Just, just It was just astonishingly obvious. And that was the beginnings. If it's not te- absolutely terrifying to you to be completely known by God, then maybe you haven't thought about it very much. Like, this is the creator of the universe. You can't hide anything from him. Why is it that we don't want to reveal ourselves to other people? I mean, how many times have you been like, man, I really want to ask for this, but I'm so afraid they'll say no. I'm so afraid I'll feel shamed in front of other people. I'm so afraid I'll be rejected and feel like I'm not enough. And so we don't, we lock it in. We lock in these deep senses of shame. We guard our true desires. And if we begin to do that with everybody around us, we also will begin to do that with God. Second way is for reading and meditating on scripture. Now, I don't mean, a lot of us read things for information. We read things to know things. And once we know things, we feel that we are better at things, right? Because we know more. And so we talk about what we know to other people and they're really impressed by us. But our life hasn't changed. We haven't incorporated those things we're learning. We haven't applied them because we haven't meditated on what they mean for us. We fill our heads with so much information every day. I mean, sometimes I can't even drive the car without flipping a podcast on because I just like want more, just more, bring me more, I need to know more. It's actually like an avoidance technique sometimes to really deal with applying what I just learned on the last podcast before I go to the next one. Like, what am I actually gonna do with this information? We feel like kings. It's like putting on robes and crowns and jewels, and we just feel so smart, but we're not living any differently. It's the meditating that changes things. Tim Keller writes about meditating on scripture, and he says, and this is just such a good line, meditation is praying the truth you just studied deep into your soul until it catches fire. Like holding, you know, when you're starting a campfire and you're holding those embers in or that that paper that you lit on fire, that stick, and you're holding it in there until you actually see flame come out. Like that is a level of commitment to scripture that is a serious process for all of us to take on. And then the last piece is contemplation. Contemplation is moving outside of the text. It's moving outside of the podcast. It's just moving through life. It's, it's having interactions with other people. It's being blown away by the fact that there was snow on the ground this morning. And then we go into contemplation. This is saying, I have an actual experience and I'm just, I'm, I'm experiencing it. I'm moving it around and I'm getting the taste of it. Do I like it? Do I not like it? What does it mean? Is it leading me somewhere? And this process of contemplation is a process of making something that could be just passed by deeply, deeply rich. So sometimes for us, we're told about God. Like on Sundays, you're coming and you're listening and you're hearing all these cool things about God and about the Bible. But there's a huge difference between knowing how honey tastes versus having the memory of the taste of honey itself, right? You can be told it tastes good. You can be told there's a great dessert place in town. They have the best pastries. But until you've had it, when you hear about that place, you won't have those feelings of like, gosh, I want to go back to that place. It was so, that place was so good. There's just a huge difference when we actually contemplate. And we actually do tons of contemplation. I was just contemplating without realizing it the other night. We make a calendar every Christmas and we go through all of our photos from the year 
And it's sometimes it feels like a real chore. It's like, oh, I gotta go through like all these photos I've been taking and I gotta pick out the ones that make the calendar. Now I'm getting attached. Now I want them to look just a certain way. But the cool part of it is that when you're going through all these photos, what do you do? You go, oh, that was such a, do you remember that? That was such a fun trip. Like, look at this photo. Like you just like, you totally get into it, right? You're contemplating your life through these photos and these warm feelings of the love or these warm memories or maybe sometimes triggers of terrible things, but usually not. We take photos of the good times. They're coming up and they're just making you feel something. The Bible is meant to make us feel. Prayer is meant to make us contemplate. It's meant to create these memories that we can look back to and we can go, oh my gosh, you know what? Maybe the Bible reading isn't my thing, but that time that we were hanging out with that couple and I just felt really alive, it felt different. I felt, I felt like I really wanted to know God. Or maybe it's linking things saying, oh, that time at the beach, we were really experiencing God's love. I wanna say it was just our friends at the beach, but we were actually experiencing God's love. It's just a further connection. We do this all the time, but a lot of times we don't link it or it can't be linked because we're after things that aren't from God. Archbishop William Temple writes this. He says, your religion is what you do with your solitude. It is a searching question. When you have time all to yourself, when you don't have to think of anything, where does your mind most effortlessly go? What do you enjoy daydreaming about, thinking about in your inner sanctum? That, Temple argues, is your real God, your real faith, what has captured your heart and your imagination. If when you have time, you instinctively pray, then you can know that your heart is beginning to rest in God as the reward of the ultimate prize of your life. I would take that one step further and I would say, even that word prayer, you guys have programmed that to mean a certain thing. He is not literally meaning our Father who art in heaven. He is meaning when you have linked it in a way that it can be linked, when you know and you thank God for that thing and you desire more after him. And that thing is no longer just for your own satisfaction, but it is so that you might be filled with love to love other people. So there's also, you see in Moses here, he's, he's had this horrible experience. He, God's like, I just think I, literally God goes, I think I'm just gonna blow everyone away and start over again. And Moses is like, uh -uh, no, don't, please don't. Like, please don't, you said you wouldn't. So let's move back. You've taught me all these things. I'm gonna use all the things you taught me. And I'm gonna argue your point back to you. And he does this with such an urgency. Moses has been given instructions for the tabernacle prior to this in Exodus that are like super elaborate. But what he does here is he goes and pitches a pup tent. The tabernacle is not ready yet. And so Moses says, I don't have time for a tabernacle. I'm gonna go just pitch a tent out of the camp and I'm gonna use that for now because I have got to see and be seen by God. I've got to have it, it's urgent, I need it, I'm gonna stop everything else. This is by far the most important thing. Because if we don't think we're loved by God, we can't love God. Let that sink in. If you don't think, if you don't know you're loved by God, you can't love God. If you're busy trying to love other people, but inside you're empty and unlovable and unloved, just stop. Build, get the pup tent out and put it out in the woods and go get love from God. That is not a selfish thing to go do. That is the thing you most need. It is the thing that God wants you to do. And so that's what Moses does. He first goes upward. He first goes upward, then it comes inward, and then he can go outward, okay? Upward, inward, outward. How does the upward work? First, he has to receive love from God. Then he can love God back. Now, as he receives love from God, what can he begin to do with his own soul? 
This is what we're terrible at. A lot of us are terrible at this, myself included. He can love himself. That's like a dirty word in Christianity. It's like a, it's a, it's not a dirty word in society right now, but it's a dirty word in Christianity, self-care. No, there is a self-care message to Christianity. And actually it's intrinsic. It's super important. It is super duper duper important that we learn self-love and self-care and that is not selfishness. Now, here's where it's different from society. Society says without any basis whatsoever, just love yourself. Nah, axe murder, love yourself. Uh, death row, love yourself. You know, you just need to take care of yourself and you'll become a better person. But I'm totally unlovable. And society tells me I'm on death row for goodness sake. Like you're telling me to love yourself. You're in a fantasy world. Self-care and self-love actually don't have any basis outside of the Christian faith. These are things that operate as an extension of God's love for us. First, God tells me, absolutely, I love you. And then before I do anything else, in the morning, before I do anything else, I have to say, God, thank you so much. You love me. I'm lovable. I'm loved right now. I love you, God. Do you see the difference in waking up and starting your day, basking for just a moment in God's undying love for you? How would that completely change my outward love? Now I'm not grasping for love when I do my outward love. Now it's not a transaction. Verse 14, the Lord replied to him, to Moses, after he said this. He says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Very similar to some of the things Jesus says, right? My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's a promise. That's an amazing promise. 15 through 17. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Coach told me this week, he said, he goes, Fortune 500 CEOs have to take more and more. As you grow in leadership, you have to take more and more and more and more time away, retreating, meditating, contemplating. In the case of spiritual leaders, the case of all of us, as we have more responsibilities. Now we have kids. Now we have a home. Now we're part of a church. Now maybe we're leading in the church. Whatever the thing is, as we take on, maybe we got promoted at work. There's people under us relying on our decisions for their livelihood and their homes and their kids. As that grows and you get to a level, like some of these people out there we read about, he goes, they are literally paid to make three to four decisions a year. And those decisions will have just such extreme impact. So they have to take more and more time away. Exodus 33 earlier says that they took off their ornaments. Like there is this sense in which Moses says, I just need guys, give me this space. Everybody notice honors him as he goes out to the tent. They all stand there and they honor that the leader needs space to find God's love for him and to implore God and ask him, where do we go from here? David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher in England in the last century, says that revival starts when we set up this tent somehow, somewhere outside the ordinary. We have to go out of our way. Now, this is the question that I want to impress upon your minds. Are you just content to come to services and do routine things? Or have you felt that you are called to exceptional prayer? Are you willing to go out as it were to take some deliberate action in a way that separates you? Keller says a similar thing. He says, how difficult it is to see any difference between the church and the good organizations, the political societies, the cultural societies. Watch their meetings and ask, can you tell any difference among them? We are nice people. We're respectable people. But we need to ask God to shake us. 
shake us and ask him to make us something that is so amazing that the world should be compelled to look on and say, what is this? Hebrews 11.6 tells us, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's that idea of favor we've been talking about. Moses also is searching for God's redemptive plan, more shape. And he's searching for God's promises to Israel and he's working these out. And it is actually, get this, it is because Moses did this that we have the image of the revealed God that we have in the Bible. We are incredibly in debt to Moses's devotion and God's ordination of this time of investigation and seeking out. It is because of all of Israel's failures that we know the revealed God. Isn't that amazing? Now, the failures in your life, where you go, ah, my kids are gonna not grow up as well as I grew up, or, you know, I'm not as good of a worker as my parents were, or I'm not, whatever. It is by the failures of our life too. And the proper failing, the failing well that God is revealed. Okay, I'm running out of time. So what happens then is for the rest of these verses, Moses contends with God, as I said earlier. Like imagine you're a lawyer and you train your kid in law and you're just teaching them all the time all this stuff. And then like you're saying something, some moral truth, something that needs to happen. He goes, objection. And he totally floors you. He like completely all legal protocol. He's like lawyering you. And you're like, would you be mad or would you be proud? You'd be so proud of your kid. Be like, you're totally right. Oh my gosh. Like you just aced that. That's what happens in the rest of this between Moses and God. Moses says, you promised this. And God says, okay, all right, you're right, I did. Let's go, let's do it. He's proud of Moses rising to become a leader who is now beginning to see the face of God, but he only sees the face of God insofar as God reveals it to him. So if you go and read this passage later, you will find this weird point at which, here, I'll just read it here in 18. Moses says, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will call it all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. What? I thought we, they were just talking face to face as friends. I thought they totally saw each other's faces. You cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. And then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face not, must not be seen. It's a really bizarre passage. Visually, it's quite an image. What do you think's happening there? Here's what I think is happening. I think God is saying, I draw this. This is for me to draw. You don't get to draw it. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's saying, I'm the order maker. I'm the harmony maker. I will reveal it to you as it needs to be revealed to paint the picture of glory. And trust me, that will not push you under the bus. That will not make you less than I've got you. I'm actually covering you with my hand because if you saw me, you'd probably die on the spot. Other people in Israel's history ascend the mountain. David builds his throne on the Mount of Zion. The temple, the presence of God. He says, we've arrived, we've got it. I'm the anointed one and we've got the temple. And God says, not so fast. I reveal my face. Your son will build it. And then Solomon builds the temple. But God's presence doesn't stay there. Why? Because Solomon thinks he knows it all. So he just works it. He colors his own picture in and he marries hundreds of women from other countries and he does it his own way. God's presence leaves that place, leaves Israel and Israel is conquered. They need a new Messiah. 
they continue to seek the face of God. And there will be another one who will ascend a mountain. And when he ascends the mountain, he will be transfigured. He'll be transfigured. He will be the image of this. Listen, this is one chapter later in Exodus. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, so Moses goes up again to the the commandments. He sees the face of God as God reveals it. God reveals his face in the law. God brings that down to his people. So Moses has been in the presence of God. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of testimony in his hands, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Okay. Jesus goes up another mountain and he's transfigured and he too shines in the presence of God in a transcendent moment in the presence of God. But unlike Moses, Jesus is the one who can actually ascend the hill of the Lord. He is the one who can do it exactly the way it's been forecasted, but go all the way with it. He is the sacrificial son that Abraham had to take to the mountain. He is the temple on Zion. Do you see how it all adds up in this just kind of amazing, mind-blowing way across the Bible? And he dies for us, of course. And he paints the strokes that make the final form that create perfect harmony in the tapestry of God's perfect design of love. That's God's perfect design of love. It is the thing that will create harmony and justice for the oppressed, the hurting, and the broken. And in Jesus, we see God's face made flesh. Emmanuel God with us. And Jesus loves everybody who his face looks at. But do they all look at him and love him back? Jesus came and saw lots of people face to face. And the Pharisees met him face to face, but they did not see God's face in Christ. They did not allow themselves to know him. They did not experience, this is how it starts. The Pharisees didn't experience Jesus' love for them because it didn't look like what they wanted it to look like. Isn't that interesting? Jesus loved the Pharisees just as much as he loved his most beloved disciple, but they couldn't tell. And because they didn't feel loved, what did they go do? They were filled with hate. But the disciples, of course, did love Jesus. They sought his face. And they didn't have to do anything. They just had to stop making excuses, stop distracting themselves, stop working for affirmation, stop jockeying for the top position, and just be still and be loved. 